0: This morning we'll be looking at rest for the weary, a promise that Christ gives us. It's actually an invitation to those who are weary as we come to Matthew chapter 11. And I just uh, want us to look this morning at, a, we'll be looking at the, the uh, passage of uh, Matthew 11:25 25 through 30. But I want to ask this question before we kind of get into the text of scripture. Uh, why did Jesus come into the world? And you could probably answer that with a variety of questions, and they may all be right. Um, What is the purpose of his incarnation? The Bible says very clearly in several places that our Lord came into the world. He came down to this earth and took on human flesh. And the purpose of that, the Bible says, was to save who? Sinners. To save sinners. God came to earth to save sinners. And we have to understand, well, what do we need saved from? Well, we need saved from judgment. We need saved from wrath. We need saved from a place called hell that's a very real place. And he came to save us from our sins. And Jesus Christ expressed this purpose of the incarnation when he said, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is what? Lost. So the purpose that God came down and took on human flesh in the form of Jesus Christ in his human body while he was here on earth, the purpose is salvation. That's the message of our faith. That's the message of Christianity, salvation. And that expresses the heart of our God. As you read throughout Scripture, over and over and over again, he's seeking to save that which is lost. Even back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 45 Isaiah 45, verse 22, it says, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no one else. So look to me and be saved. Even to him shall men come. That's an invitation that God has extended. That really expresses the heart of God, the heart of salvation. Over a couple pages in Isaiah 55, 1, he says this Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Again, those are the verses there in, in Isaiah 55. God gives an invitation. In that invitation, he says, come. There's no price attached. Come and take freely of the grace of God. Even in the, old, or in the New Testament, all the way in the end, Revelation 22, verse 17. Revelation 22, 17, it says, The spirit and the bride say what? Come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Revelation 22:17. So whether you're in the Old Testament, the New Testament, it doesn't matter. God is always inviting people to come to salvation. That's the heart of God. That's the character of who God is. and that even expresses itself out in the character of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 6:35, after feeding the multitude and providing them, remember the fish and the bread. You remember what happens? Um, He says this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And look look at what it says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so he's calling, the Lord Jesus Christ is calling men not only to come, but to believe. And he calls men to come and believe. And those things are synonymous. If you come to Christ, you're going to believe in him. If you believe in Christ, you're going to come to him. In John chapter 7, if you turn over there, John chapter 7, this is just kind of laying a groundwork for our text this morning over in Matthew. But John chapter 7, in verse 37, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So you have the same setup there, the same equation. Coming is believing, and believing is coming. And he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus says, come, eat, drink. There's no cost involved, just come. Over in John eleven twenty five. 25 as he gathered with those who were broken-hearted over the, uh, the death of their brother Lazarus. We know this verse. We, we hear this verse a lot at, at funerals. It says, I, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So come on to me, he says, because I am the life. I am bread. I am water. I am light. And so coming is believing, and believing is coming. And those are invitations that the Lord gave. Well, back to Matthew chapter 11, because we see another invitation here that the Lord shows us in verses 25 to 30. We're going to take two weeks to go through this text. But beginning in verse 25, let's just read it and ask God to open our hearts to his word this morning. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, it At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We have to understand, to understand this text, we have to understand what Jesus is offering us. He's saying, come unto me, and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest. What does he mean by rest? He says it in verse 28. He says it again in verse 29. He says, I will give it, and you will receive it. The promise of our Lord is rest. That is what Jesus offers people today, is rest. Now, lest you think in your mind, okay, that rest means to me I'm just kind of home kicking back on the couch, got the football game on, got some wings there, maybe some chips, and wife's bringing me the soda, and I'm just resting. By the second quarter, I'm in la-la land. That might be your idea of rest. I don't know. But what does he speak of here when he speaks of rest? What is it? Because we don't understand the invitation unless we understand what he's offering us. We do not know to what Jesus calls men unless we can divine that term rest. And so that's what we want to do. The literal Greek says, "I will rest you." I will refresh you. I will revive you. To get a better understanding of that, turn over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. Rest is a common Old Testament Word It's used many times in the Psalms. It's used many times in Isaiah. It's used many times throughout the Bible. But what does it mean? Well, I think when we turn to Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to begin to understand this concept, this Jewish concept of rest, what he's really talking about. In Hebrews chapter 3, look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Here he's quoting what we read this morning, Psalm 95. So if it seems familiar, that's where it's from. Therefore, as the Spirit, Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested Me and tried Me and saw My works forty years. Stop right there. See, here is a warning. It's a warning. Don't harden your hearts like your forefathers did. At the time of testing in the wilderness. The 40, day, 40 years they were out there. The Lord was showing them. He was revealing himself to them. And he says, you know what? They put me to the test and I passed the test for 40 years. They saw my works. They saw everything I did. And yet they still didn't believe. Now, to understand properly the book of Hebrews, you kind of have to understand a little bit about the book itself. It's written really to three different audiences. It has three different audiences in mind. Back in this time, the book of Hebrews was written to a community of Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, people who came out of the Jewish faith and put their faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah. But you also see throughout the book of Hebrews, there's kind of scattered here and there warnings. And these are warnings for people who may be outwardly convinced that Jesus says who he says he is. Jewish people who, who look at the works of Jesus and say, wow, that's pretty impressive. He must be from God. They're outwardly convinced. They believe it, but they won't commit themselves to it. They don't want to go down that way because if they go down that way, they're going to be ostracized from their society. They're going to be kicked out of their synagogue. So they look at Christ and they're almost fascinated with him. And they say, well, he could be the Messiah. But they're unwilling to cross that line. They had a term for that. The, the, the term is unsynagogued. They'd literally kick them out of the synagogue if they came to Christ. And so they were, you had a group of people who were Jewish Christians who fully committed. You had another group of people who were Jews who saw the works of Christ. They were kind of entranced by the whole thing but they were unwilling to cross the line. They were sitting at a crossroads, as it were. They may have even come out of the past in the sense that they brought themselves to understand the reality of the gospel, and they may have even believed it, but they didn't enter into it because their faith wasn't activated to receive Christ. And so they sat on the fence between their traditional religion of Judaism and following Christ. And that's really a place of an apostate and a potential apostate who knows basically the gospel. They could probably quote it to you, but they never make that decision. They never make that commitment. And finally, they end up hardening themselves to the gospel altogether. Intellectually convinced Jews who will not come to Christ. And so the the writer of Hebrews here is giving a second warning to this group of intellectually convinced people. But they won't come to Christ. They just won't make the move. And so he says today, Hear his voice and do not harden your hearts like your forefathers did in the wilderness. Look at verse 10. He says, wherefore, he's still quoting the Holy Spirit, I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore my wrath, in my wrath, they shall not enter into my what? What's it say? Rest. They shall not enter into my rest. That's that word. It's the same word that's used in the Gospel of Matthew. Well, what does that rest mean to the Jews who were in the wilderness? Well, it meant the land of Canaan. They had come out of Egypt. They made a move away from Egypt toward Canaan. But they never had the faith to take the step into the promised land. And the Bible says they all died in the wilderness, an entire generation of people who were faithless when it came to crossing that line into the land of Canaan. Now, obviously, some of them believed. Some of them were probably truly redeemed throughout history. But the illustration here is clear. These people came out of Egypt. They started moving in the right direction. They believed that there was a better land in their head. They believed that there was a better way. And that's like the Jew who sees the truth of the gospel, but they wandered For years in between until eventually they died without ever entering into that rest that he's talking about. Don't be convinced that the gospel is really true, but stay in the place of indecision. That's where they were until finally it's a dangerous place. You stay there long enough. Finally, you feel nothing but God's wrath. See, God's invitation, Christ's invitation, is for us to enter into his rest. So, here in this analogy, and also over in Matthew, rest speaks of salvation. That's what God's speaking of here. And we know here in Hebrews that these people are not Christians, just by the way he says it. There's a lot of you know, bantering back and forth. You pull out certain verses out of Hebrews. Oh, this is talking about a Christian. Can they lose their salvation or whatever? Well, in this text right here, obviously, they're not Christians. For one thing, it says in verse 7 that they do not hear whose voice? God's voice, right? They do not hear God's voice. The last time I checked in John 10, it says, my sheep hear what? My voice, and they know me. So these are people that don't even hear the voice of God. Secondly, in verse 8 there in Hebrews, it says that they harden their hearts. And if you go back to Ezekiel, it says when someone is redeemed by God, he takes away the stony heart and he gives them a what? Heart of flesh. And not only that, but look at verse 10. It says they always erred in their heart. They were sinful. And then it says they have not known my ways. So if you show me a person who does not know God's ways, who's always erring in his heart, always sinful, a person who hardens and resists God and doesn't hear his voice, I'll show you an unbeliever. That's basically who he's talking about here. And these are unbelieving people who do not enter into God's rest. Rest was depicted by Canaan, and it's an illustration of salvation. So what we're talking about here is salvation, the essence of what the writer of Hebrews is saying is speaking of salvation. Now, verse 12, it kind of makes it very practical here. He says there in verse 12 of Hebrews 3, Beware brethren. And some people get mixed up here because if you go back to uh, verse 1 of Hebrews, he calls them holy brethren. And then all of a sudden here he just says brethren. Brethren. A lot of commentators believe he's not referring to Christians here. He's just referring to Jewish brothers. And so he's just saying, as a Jewish brother, one to another, you better take heed, lest there be any of you whose heart is evil in unbelief that you're departing from the living God. He's talking about unbelievers here. Don't be like that. Verse 13, it goes on there, and it says that these people were hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So rest has to equate with salvation. Verse 14 says there, we have become partakers of Christ literally only if we hold on to our confidence to the end. In other words, people who depart from the living God, people who harden their hearts, people who don't believe, people who always do evil, who do not hear his voice and don't know him, obviously they're not partakers of Christ. And he even emphasizes it a little further there in verse 19. He says, today hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. And he goes back to the same thought there in verse 19. Kind of sums it all up at the end. So we see they could not enter into enter in because of what? What's it say? Unbelief. What keeps you from the rest that God is offering you? Unbelief. Because if you enter into salvation, you enter. There's only one way to enter into salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it's for by grace that you have been what? Saved through faith. That's the only way that you can be saved is through faith. You believe unto salvation. And when they did not believe, they could not enter rest. They could not enter salvation. Look at verse 4. This is kind of interesting. Hebrews 4.1. It says, let us therefore fear. He's kind of taking this illustration a little bit further here. And he says, lest the promise being left for us entering into his rest, we should still miss it. In other words, he says, you know what? We too have a promise of rest. We have salvation promise. And yet we can come short of that same thing. He says, for we have had the good news preached to us just as they did. But with them, there was no benefit because it wasn't mixed with faith. Verse 3, for we who have believed do enter into Rest. And he goes on talking more about it. And look down at verse 9. And this just kind of concludes this. He says, There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Verse 10. For he who has entered his rest, has entered salvation, look at what it says, has himself also what? Ceased from what? From his works as God did from his. Interesting. That's the key to this whole passage. The Jew believed that he could enter into salvation, he could enter into God's rest by what? By works. There's so many people today in our world that think that somehow they can do more spiritually in their life. They can do more morally in their life. They can do acts of kindness. They can go feed the homeless, the poor. All those things are good things. But they think somehow that that's earning them something in heaven. And the Bible says that all of our good works are like filthy rags before a holy God outside of Christ. So the Jew of Jesus' day believed that his salvation was by works. Keeping the traditions, keeping the law. And the writer says here, if you're going to enter the rest, you're going to enter God's salvation, the invitation that he's giving. You better learn something real quick that you have to cease from your works. Then in verse 11 covers the other side of that. It says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So you cease from all your works as far as you saving yourself. But the Bible says that we still have to labor to enter that rest. Salvation is free. But as we looked at earlier in Matthew, remember he said, the gate is broad that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. And that means constrictive. That means you've got to work to get through it. And what that points to back is what kind of invitations to salvation are we giving people today? Are we say, telling people, oh, it's easy. Just believe. Just add Jesus to your life. Just put him right there on top, and everything will be fine. Now go back to Matthew 11, because that's one thing we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks, is what kind of invitation is this that Christ is giving us? So rest then refers to salvation. And Jesus says, come on to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. You'll find rest for your souls. I think he's offering them salvation. He's giving them saving rest. The dictionary is interesting because it gives us different, uh, one commentator pointed out five different definitions of the word rest. First, it said rest is to cease from action or motion, to stop labor and exertion. And each one of these definitions kind of has a nice little parallel that we can apply spiritually. To enter God's rest means that there's no more self-effort. We don't try to earn God's favor. There's no more fleshly works to seek his mercy. All the works, righteous systems of the world end as a way to God. It doesn't work that way. Most of the world religions have a a works, righteousness system set up. If you do this, this, and this, then God will like you more. True Christianity, the true Bible gospel, is the only message that says, you know what, none of that stuff matters. Matter of fact, you've got to stop doing what you're trying to do. Stop trying to save yourself. Come to the end of yourself. And you learn to rest in his consuming grace. Another definition says rest is to be free from whatever wearies or disturbs. And you know what? In a spiritual sense, when we enter God's rest, when we enter God's salvation, it means to be at peace with God. Not only to possess Not only that peace with God, but the Bible describes it as the peace of God, which what? Passes all understanding. To have your heart totally calm in the midst of a storm is the idea. To have no more frustration and no more anxiety over your life, over your destiny. No need to worry because your sin is forgiven in Christ Jesus. There's no guilt there. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the Bible says third definition, rest is to be settled or fixed. It's a definition of rest, to be settled or fixed. To enter God's rest means that we are positionally secure in God. I mean, some people need to stop running from religion to religion, to philosophy to philosophy, to guru to guru, and and focus on what Christ said, and rest there, and they will be saved. Fourth definition for rest means to remain confident or trustful. To enter into God's rest means to enjoy faith without fear. To enjoy security, to have perfect trust. That our time and eternity is in his care and he's going to love us. Because that's what he says in his word. Rest can also mean to lean on or to depend on. And when we enter God's rest, that means that, you know what? We stop depending on ourselves. We stop leaning upon ourselves. And we depend on him for everything. And the Bible says that he supplies all of our needs. So rest is simply the cease from action, to be free from whatever disturbs, to be fixed, settled, to be confident, trustful, to lean on and depend upon. And really, that's a good picture of our salvation, isn't it? Now, if you go back to Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, the Lord there says, I will give you rest. He's talking about all those elements that we just mentioned. But it even means more than that. Rest also, in the Jewish culture, was a term for the kingdom. Because they believed when you entered the kingdom, you would enter God's rest. You would be saved. And so rest is also a term for heaven. In the Revelation, it says... She shall rest from her labors, and her works do follow. So when the Lord says you will enter into the rest, it means a personal, immediate, eternal salvation in the kingdom. And that's the fullness of the salvation that God gives us. So Jesus came into the world to give rest to those who had come to him. And what did he say the word come means? It means to believe. For those who believe in him, there is salvation, there is rest. And that's the the simple gospel invitation that the Lord gives here. But even though it's simple, it's also complex. And there's five essential elements here of Jesus' invitation that we want to look at. And we're just going to look at one today. But if we're going to understand this true invitation that Christ gives, we have to understand what this invitation is all about. So Jesus Christ is calling people to come to him. How did he do it? Well, look at verse 25. Just kind of a little bit of contextual background here. Matthew 11, verse 25. It says right there off the top, at that time, at that time. Well, the question should go right in your head. What's he talking about? At what time? What's, what's he mean here? It could be the immediate time preceding these verses that we talked about the last couple weeks when he's pronouncing basically judgment on Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum because they had all this evidence exposed to them and yet they still lingered in their unbelief and he pronounced doom and judgment upon them. It could be that time he was talking about. It could have been at the very time that Jesus turned immediately and he gave the invitation to these people he just pronounced doom upon. It could also mean his entire Galilean ministry. He was going throughout Galilee doing all these miracles. He could be referring to that time. And he did all these miracles, and still in the end, some wouldn't believe. Most rejected his message. And he could say, finally, the time came where it was kind of the the climax of his ministry time. He had done all he could do. To show them who he was. And they still wouldn't believe. He sent out the 12 according to chapter 10. And then Luke 10 says that he sent out 70. So here he has 82 people. And they're out there proclaiming the message of Christ. Proclaiming what he does. They're doing miracles. They're doing all this stuff. And they all come back. And they realize the same thing Christ realized. Because he was out there ministering as well. That you know what? These people aren't listening. (laughs) They're looking at all the evidence and they're going, wow, well, that's great, but don't I don't want to go any further with you. They were rejecting the message of Christ. So whether it's the immediate pronouncement of judgment he's responding to or just his overall ministry, it doesn't really say. But in... Verses 11 and 12, we've been looking at these different responses to Christ. We've seen the response of doubt. We've seen the response of criticism and indifference. In the coming weeks, we're going to see the the reactions of amazement and fascination and rejection and ultimate blasphemy. And right here in the middle, he puts this little invitation. It's almost like he's saying, you know what? You guys are heading on the wrong path, but I'm going to try this one more time. I'm going to give you one more opportunity to respond to the gospel. It's as if the whole world has turned their backs on him and his arms are still extended. See, that's the kind of Savior we have, beloved. We have the kind of Savior that says, you know what? I'm going to be here if you're willing to come. I'm going to be here if you're willing to come. The whole culture was at a point of rejecting him, and yet he still issued the invitation. And he's giving it tenderly. He's giving it lovingly. Right next to this cursing of these towns who were not listening to him is this incredible, loving invitation. And that just shows the heart of God, doesn't it? That our God is a God of justice. He's a God of judgment. He's a God of wrath. And yet, he's still a God of love. He's still a God of grace. He's still a God of mercy. He says, at that time, Jesus answered and said, well, did anybody ask him a question? I mean, usually when you say somebody answered, you usually expect a question. Well, there's no question here. Basically, what that means is that he spoke openly. At that time, he was willing to give this invitation, and it wasn't a private invitation. It wasn't the kind of invitation where all the heads are bowed and all the eyes are closed, and if you want to come to Christ, maybe slip your little pinky up so I can see it. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, people use that, and I'm not saying God can't use that. But that's not the kind of invitation we're talking about here. We're talking about an open invitation. He spoke openly. It's not secret. But it's open. He calls people to come personally to him. And look at how he starts the invitation. Verse 25. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. I mean, this is very, very basic to our understanding of any presentation of the gospel. See, we have to recognize that people are going to respond in a myriad of ways, right? I mean, when you go share the gospel with somebody, they don't always say, oh, yes, I would like to believe in Jesus. Let me pray right now. And they pray, and boy, they're gloriously saved. I mean, if that was the case, every time we shared the gospel, somebody got saved, we'd be out of our mind not to do it 24-7, right? Because we want to see people saved. But that's not the response that we get. You get a variety of responses. And see, he starts the invitation to salvation here. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, I don't care if the response is negative to your gospel. I don't care if it's positive. All I know is that, God, you are in control of this situation. It speaks of the ultimate sovereignty and control of God. That's why he uses that term, Father, Lord, what? Of heaven and earth. I mean, you can't go any further than that. It fills up our thinking. He's the sovereign of the universe. The Lord is over everything. And what he's doing is he's thanking God that he is in absolute sovereign control. Nothing operates outside of his sphere of control. He's saying, God, I thank, thank you that you're in charge here. Verse 26. He continues that thought. He says, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Notice he doesn't say, well, gee, it, it, it doesn't seem, you know, it seems good in my sight. But not. No, he says, you know what, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what you think, Father. You are doing that which seems good in your sight. And I just say that to say this. An approach to an invitation has to have a recognition that God is the one who has to be praised. God is the determining factor here in what happens with the response to that invitation. And so our Lord recognized the sovereignty of God. Well, don't you get a little upset when you go out and you share your faith with somebody? Don't you get a little discouraged and they don't come to Christ? Well, sure. I mean, even Christ wept over Jerusalem with their unbelief. And yet, on the other hand, we have to see this for what it is. He's saying here, you know what, God? I thank you that this thing is going according to your plan, even though Many of the people that we're doing these miracles for, and these 80-some people are out there ministering on my behalf, they come back with the same report I'm facing. They're all rejecting it. People, for the most part, were rejecting the message of Christ, and yet he still says, you know what? God, praise you, because you're sovereign in this. It's still you're you're working your plan out. It's not frustrated at all. See, sometimes when we share our faith with people, we get irritated. Because we we lose heart. They're not believing, and we want them to believe, and that's all good. But somehow we have to come to the conclusion that, you know what, God, you're in control of this thing. I'm not. Because if you don't come to that conclusion, what begins to happen? You begin to play Holy Spirit. And the minute you begin to play Holy Spirit, last time I checked, there's no vacancy in the Trinity. So we just need to stop. Doesn't mean you don't pray for their salvation. Doesn't mean that you don't use opportunities to encourage them to seek Christ. But there comes a point in time, beloved, where you have to step back and say, you know what, God? It's not my job to save people, it's your job. That's what Scripture says. We're just the messengers. We take the message of the gospel out to a lost and dying world. And at some point, we have to come to the recognition of God. You're in control of this. I'm not. Some of those hearts are going to be open to your gospel. Some of them are going to reject your gospel. The plan is going to go according to his good pleasure, not our plan. That's why it says, what seems good in your sight. And he's the only one that's going to determine that. Even when the Lord came to earth, he said, my will is to do the will of what? Him who sent me. Jesus didn't come here on his own prerogative. Now I'm here, I'm just going to do whatever I want. He wanted to do the Father's will. He had an unyielding trust in God's perfect will. And so he rests in the sovereign good purpose of the father who's the lord over heaven and earth and he thanks him that he's the one that makes salvation a reality in someone's heart and with the affirmation of the father's control he then turns to the invitation and that's where we're going to see five elements of this we're just going to look at the first one today but there's five elements of Christ's invitation here the first one Let's call it humility or dependence. Humility or dependence. Verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because here here it comes. Thou hast hidden these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good or right in your sight. What he's saying is, Father, you know what? I thank you (laughs) that the plan is that someone doesn't get saved because they're smart. I thank you, Father, that the plan is someone doesn't get saved just because they're intelligent. I thank you, Father, that no one is shut out because maybe they're a few bricks short upstairs. No one's shut out because maybe they're a little ignorant. Ignorant. Now, some people look at this and they say, oh, well, some people believe that you are shut out if you're intelligent. You are shut out. How many times have you heard the phrase, you know, he's too smart for his own good? See, some people believe, they might take this verse to mean that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent. In other words, the smarter you are, the harder it is. Because God just doesn't want smart people in heaven, period. Well, that's not what he's saying here. So if you're one of our more intelligent people here this morning, take heart. Let's look at what he's saying here. First of all, first thing we have to do is understand what he's talking about. He says, you have hidden these things. Those two words. What is he referring to? What is he referring to when he says these things? Well, it's something that he refers to babes. That means a a babe that's nursing. So it can't mean like, you know, science or factual information because a baby wouldn't get that. It wouldn't be worldly wisdom because those things aren't hidden from the wise and prudent of the world. So what's he talking about? He's not talking about education here. He's not talking about information. Look over at Acts chapter 1. Because the same word is used there, and we see exactly what he's talking about. When we look at Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says, To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering... After the passion of the Christ, he suffered, was resurrected, everything, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking of what? Of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. See, before the cross, after the cross, after the resurrection, all as Christ did continually was talk about. Things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So when he says in Matthew, these things are hidden, what things is he talking about? He's talking about the things of the kingdom. He's talking about the teachings of Jesus about God the Father. He's talking about the teachings of Christ about righteousness, about salvation, about messiahship, lordship, servanthood, saviorhood. He's talking about Jesus' teachings on obedience and submission. He's talking about whatever Jesus taught about the kingdom, the spiritual truth, that's what he's referring to in Matthew. And you might say here, well, wait a minute. Does that mean that these deep kingdom spiritual truths are not available to the educated and to the wise, to the intelligent, but it's only available to babies? Well, that's what he says. Matter of fact, that's what he says, and he says, thank God it's that way. The son says, thank you, God, that you put down human wisdom, that you put down human reasoning. That's not how you get into heaven. In effect, what he's saying, if you turn over to 1 Corinthians, we see it. Paul points it out very clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Here he's quoting Old Testament. Isaiah once again, but he says, Eye has not seen nor ear heard. What is that? That's empirical evidence. That's external objective study. The eye can't see it and the ear can't hear it. It's not made available through those means. It also says, nor have entered into the heart of man. What's that? That's subjective. That's what you think about things. It's not externally perceivable. It's not internally perceivable, these things of the kingdom that he's referring to. And then he says, the things, there we go again, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 2, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So it comes full circle. Those things pertaining to the kingdom are not available through external perception or internal perception. Verse 10, he says, But God has revealed them to us through what? What's it say? Through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. And then look down at verse 14. It says the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness. He can't understand them. And even back in in, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says the preaching of the cross to them that perish is what? Foolishness. It's a stumbling block. It doesn't make sense. They can't reason it out in their head. It's folly to them. So, what's he saying here? He's saying these things regarding the kingdom are hidden from the intelligent people, from smart people. God just takes all the smart people, IQs up here, and he hides all these things from them. That's not what it's saying. Doesn't mean that. It means they're hidden from the people who think that they can discover spiritual truth with their own intelligence all by themselves. They are hidden from those who are dependent on their wisdom and their intelligence because they're not discernible through those means. And when it says they're wise and prudent in Matthew, it's just a a term that you can use interchangeably. And what he's saying is truth can't be known just through the human mind itself. There's something more to it. And that's important to understand because the rabbis and the Pharisees of Jesus day they basically looked at the law and they were given the law, stewards of the law and, and God revealed himself to them. In that way and so when Christ came along and said, "Hey, there's some new revelation here." They said, no, "No, no, we already got it. We got it covered. We're not open to that." And they tried to reason in their mind and they couldn't get it that way. That's why they come up with all those crazy laws in their oral traditions, because they thought, well, you know, if God says honor the Sabbath, then you know what? If you pick up a paper that weighs more than three ounces, then we'll classify that as work. But if you, you know, and they had all these crazy rules because they were logically trying to reason with the law of God, and you can't do that. There's a sense in which if you think you're so smart that you don't need the truth, that you're going to willfully reject it. And when you reach that point, there comes a time in the timeline where God, then, the Bible says, will close your mind to it once and for all. Over in John chapter 12, verse 37, we see this very clearly. John chapter 12, verse 37, here you have Jesus doing all these miracles, and you had some people who still had not believed. They had all the evidence. They're just like the people in Hebrews. They saw all the evidence. They're just like the people in the land of Galilee. They saw all the evidence, and yet they didn't believe. And look at what it says in John 12, 39. It says, therefore, they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, they could not believe. Notice that. See, it was a personal choice of them to reject. And that led to a judicial divine affirmation of their rejection. Verse 40 says, He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. I mean, that is a scary place to be in, beloved. They wouldn't believe out of their own volition as the invitation was given. They just dug their heels in and said, I'm not going to believe. And it comes a point in time where God says, you know what, now you can't believe. That's a terrible, terrible definition of apostasy. Men who know And they will not believe, and God confirms them in their unbelief. What a scary place to be in. So the reference here to the wisdom and the intelligence, it's really speaking of an intelligence that's corrupted with the key word pride. Pride. Jesus thanks the Father that intellectual power is not necessary for salvation. I don't know about you, but I thank God every day for that because I'm not the brightest bulb on the block. He He recognizes here that intellectual pride keeps men from salvation. I mean, think about it. If you could get saved by your own intellect, whose glory would that be? For it wouldn't be for God's. We'd be all in heaven comparing our IQs, those that got there. Oh, What was your IQ? Oh. One writer said this, the heart, not the head, is the home of the gospel. See, there's many people in our churches today, beloved, who have it up here. They have it in their head. They could quote the gospel backward, forward. They could quote verse after verse after verse. And yet it's never entered into their heart. It's never been a transaction that God has completed. He's never transformed their stony heart into a heart of flesh. And there they go, believing, believing, believing on their way to hell. Sad place to be in. We used to have a banner out in front of our church. When I first came here, I stole it from a church down in Southern California. I like this phrase. It said... Basically, our purpose is to ignite the heart, not inflate the head. In other words, you know what? We want people to feel it down here. We want people to see Christ working in their hearts and in their lives, not just coming together and memorize myriads of scriptures and and going home and legalistically living things out. No, we want to feel it in our heart. Our Lord here is not condemning intelligence I mean, he, if you're intelligent, he created you that way, for goodness sakes. He's condemning intellectual pride. And he's also saying that you don't have to be intelligent to be saved. Matter of fact, the Lord said, except you become as what? A little child. You can't enter into his rest, you can't enter into the kingdom. So it's not intelligence which shuts people out of the kingdom. It's intellectual pride. And it's not intelligence that gets you into the kingdom. It's humility. It's a dependence on God. So how smart you are or how dumb you may be is not the issue. Intellectual pride is the issue. And here he refers to them as being too proud, too self-seeking, Too busy justifying themselves by their own statements. In Psalm 138, verse 6, it says, Though the Lord be near, yet has he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knows afar off. In other words, they have no intimacy with him. If you're prideful here this morning, you have no intimacy with your creator. And so the Lord says here in Matthew, Father, I thank you that intelligence isn't the issue. You don't need to be intelligent to be saved. And I thank you that intelligent, intellectual pride shuts people out because that wouldn't glorify you, Father. But on the same hand, I'm thankful that you, you even revealed these things onto babes. It means a baby that's just nursing. I'm talking about a very, 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 very small child. Matthew 21, 16, it talks of babes. One who doesn't have the intelligence, the education. I mean, if you had to describe a baby in one word, how would you describe it? Dependent. Right? Dependent. It's used in First Corinthians thirteen eleven of those who have not yet learned to speak. It's used in Ephesians four fourteen as those who are helpless. It's used in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and Hebrews 5. It talks about babes who, can't eat, who, who only drink milk and they can't eat solid food. So you're talking about a little helpless child here. Can't eat solid food. It's nursing at its mother's breast. And it's totally dependent on care of the mother. I mean, if you just leave a little baby lying in a crib, and walk away, eventually, what's going to happen to that little baby? It's going to die. It's totally dependent on the care of the mother. See, these are the ones who will enter into the rest, into salvation. They're dependent. They're not independent. They're dependent. They're the humble, not the proud. They're those who humbly confess their dependency They're helpless, and they recognize it. They're empty, and they know it. They're nothing. There's nothing good in them, and they're aware of that. And they're deeply aware that they have no resources in life, none, Zippo. And so they turn in utter dependency. And that's what the Lord means here when he says, except a man become as a little child, he can't enter into the kingdom of God. See, you can't enter into the kingdom of God with one foot still in the world, saying, I'm still going to try it my way, but I'm just going to add Jesus to my life. That doesn't work. Christ over and over and over again said, if you want to come follow me, then you know what? It's going to cost you everything. Because it cost him everything. He paid the price. So the comparison is between the wise and the babies. And it's not a comparison between smart and dumb people, but it's, it's, it's a comparison between dependent and prideful people. So the prosperous, the self-sufficient, the egotistical, the works, righteousness, the inhabitants of these Galilean cities that never did understand the gospel... They were shut out, but the humble and the broken were open to the revelation of God in Christ. And notice it says there, it seemed good in God's sight. Why is that good? Because it glorifies God. See, anything that glorifies yourself or anything other than God is not good. The chief end of man is to glorify God with his life, that's the reason we exist. Psalm 34, 2 says, The humble shall hear and be glad. Proverbs 22, 4 says, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor in life. So, if we're going to give out a legitimate invitation to salvation, it has to start with affirming humility. Even back in Matthew 5 The Sermon on the Mount and all that. You remember all that. I mean, it talks about coming to God with a beggar's spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Over and over, blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Those who hunger for thirst and righteousness, that's where they're going to be. They don't have a righteousness of their own, so they have to trust in God for His righteousness. So, you can't come to Christ and be saved if you don't think you need to be saved. We have to come broken. We have to come grieving over our own sin. Repentant, which means a change of mind. And only God can do that. So, our invitation begins with the invitation to the humble and the dependent people. See, that's why it's hard to reach superstars. That's why it's hard to to reach the successful. That's why it's hard to reach the people that think they know everything about everything. Because they're not willing to humble themselves before a holy God. Isaiah 57, 15 kind of draws all this to a conclusion It says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. I mean, Isaiah just put God up as far as he can go. There's no other vocabulary that can lift God up any higher in his language. I mean, he pushes him right through the atmosphere. And he says, I dwell there. And then he says this, with him who is of contrite and what? Humble spirit. See, man thinks that he must attain to that. See, in our natural abilities, we think, okay, God's up there. We're down here. We got to work our way up the ladder. And we do that through, quote, religion. Religion. So we all have our little religious things that we do, and when we do them, we think we're getting closer to God. God is going to look down, and because we do a little dance for God, he's going to give us a hug. We don't have to do a dance to get a hug from God. He just needs to see our heart broken before him. That's the kind of invitation that the Lord offers. There's no place for pride. In Luke 18, there's two men that went into the temple to pray, the Pharisee stood up and he said, Boy, I thank you that I'm not as these other men are, like this crummy tax collector over here. I fast twice a week, he said. I give tithes of all that I possess. See, he thought that he was good enough. He had the intellectual pride. He had the religious intellectual pride going on, philosophical pride, all kinds of pride, just dripping with pride this guy was. And he thought he could attain it on his own. I'm not like the other people. You know, Christianity may be for these other people. You know, they may need a crutch, but not me. I'm just going to, you know, grin and bear it and in the end just have it, whatever pans out, I guess I'll be fine with that. That's foolishness. And over in the corner in that same story, there's a sinner who's beating his breast and he can't even look up, won't even come near where the other people are. And he's asking God to be merciful to me, a sinner. Wouldn't even lift his head up. And out of those two people, the one who looked well religious and the one who looked like a, probably just a scoundrel or a bum, who went home justified? The one who was broken before God. The one who was humble before a holy God. I pray this morning, beloved, that you if you don't have a humble heart before God, I ask you, I plead with you, You get on your knees before God, and you you tell him, God, I want a humble heart. I want to know that I need to be saved if you don't know this morning. I can't convince you of that, because where am I going to try to convince you? I'm going to try to convince you in your mind. And I may be able to do that, but that's not going to save you. What's going to save you is when God reaches down and changes your heart, and only God can do that. He's looking for people who are humble and contrite in heart. And he says that he will change you in an instant. Your burdens will be lifted. The weariness of life will be gone in Christ. That's an invitation for all who hear this word this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that More than anything else, for those who may be here this morning who have yet to put their faith, their trust in your promise of rest for the weary, in your promise of salvation for those who cry out, I pray for them, Lord, that they would be convicted even now as they sit here this morning in their hearts. Lord, that your spirit would work in a way that only you can That you would convict their heart. That you would draw them onto you. That they would be willing to give up their own agenda and commit to you this morning. Lord, we need to be saved from our sin. There's coming a day when judgment will fall. And there is a place called hell. And those who do not enter into your rest, do not enter into salvation... Will be cast, the Bible says, into outer darkness in a place called hell for eternal punishment. And Father, we thank you that you provided a way out of that judgment. You provided a way out of that suffering and painful and horrible place, and that's through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it would be foolish to turn your back on such an invitation. Such an offer that comes from a God who loves and desires all to come to repentance in Christ. He's not going to make you into some weird religious freak. He's going to make you one of his children. He's going to adopt you into his family. He's going to make you part of Christ's family. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ I pray that you won't reach the point of rejecting Christ because there is that point where God just turns you over to your own rejection. Lord, we pray as believers that we would be diligent to share the gospel truth with those who have yet to hear. And Father, I pray that we would do it out of motivation to be obedient to you that we wouldn't be discouraged when people don't respond because, Lord, your word says that that's in your hands. We don't save people. We're just the messengers of the gospel. You do the saving. And, Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray that we would be dependent upon you as we go out into a lost and dying world and share the grace-filled message of hope that we find in Christ Jesus with the lost and the dying. We ask you, bless this word to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, "Amen, amen."